Mighty reigns, Psalm 93. <clears throat> let's, let's look at it here together. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O oh Lord, forevermore. Psalm 93. Psalm 93 is interesting here. It's found itself situated amongst a group of other psalms which, as their aim, point people of God to the great reality of the universe. Listen, the great reality of the universe is this. It's as simple as the psalm open. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. This psalm is found in the fourth book of the psalms, ranging from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106, which is immediately after the third book of the of the Psalms, which are used to express some of the deep concerns of the people of God. So if you look at the third book of the Psalms, one of the overwhelming and uh, one of the most like crucial things that begin to come up in those Psalms is people begin to wonder, like, has the Lord forsaken us? Has he, has he left us? How is he going to bring about uh, his promised futures? And then this particular group of, uh, of eight Psalms, from Psalm 93 to Psalm 100, continuously repeat to the people of God that he alone rules the world, almost as a means to answer the concerns of the third book of Psalms. So here's, here's how I want to preach this text this morning. Uh, first off, uh, uh, how many of you read your Bibles uh, uh, at least every now and then? Just uh, not, Don't have to raise your hand. I don't want to call you out. Uh, at least every now and then. Hopefully you're in it every day. The Lord would actually uh, would be honored and magnified by our reading of the scriptures every day. It's, uh, but how many of you read the Psalms and, or the, any scriptures and, and just you read it and you'd be like, ah, that's, that's 
it's nice to know, and you kind of go your own way. Like, let's be honest, we're in church, this is an okay place to be honest. Well, I did that with this psalm for the longest time, Psalm 93, right? Because uh, the, the refrain of Psalm 93 is that the Lord reigns, and so th- there's no implication in this text for us to do. There's no call to, to prayer. There's no call to praise. It's just simply a statement of fact. So here's how I want to preach the text today. I want to, I want to, I want to look, look at the text. We're going to see what does the text say, uh, and then I want to go a little bit farther and understand, like, well, what does it mean for us then? What does it mean for us. Can you bump me down just a little bit? I heard a little bit of echo. Thanks, brother. Um, uh, Psalm 93, verse 1. Look at this look, look at this opening line. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. I forgot to set my timer. It's extra 10 minutes. Uh, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. So this is an opening of, of proclamation. It's a statement of fact. As a matter of fact, it opens the way the same way Psalm 97 and 99 does. Look at, if you're there in your scriptures, look at Psalm 97. It opens with, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlines be glad. And then look at Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. And so this psalm opens by telling the hearer or the reader of the word, that it is the Lord who reigns. And it is this proclamation which all five verses of this psalm take up as their subject matter. It is a proclamation to remind God's people that Yahweh is on the throne and it is in complete control of the universe. Notice that there's no, there's no nuance to this. It's simply the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns universally. The psalmist says that the Lord reigns. He does not limit this reign to a certain geographical area, but simply that he reigns. This implies that there is no edge to his kingdom. There is no border. There is no wall. There is no territory that is the sovereign ground of another ruling entity. There is no embassy to which another king can claim rights. The reign of the Lord is universal. This reign implies that the Lord rules over a kingdom, And as Psalm 103 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. You see, his kingdom, the kingdom of God, rules over all things. All things. Colossians will pick this up and uh, reference it as well in saying that that Christ, uh, uh, everything is, is Christ. Everything is held together in Christ. You see, this kingdom rules over all the earth. As Psalm 47 verse 2 says, for the Lord, the most high, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He rules over all the kings of the earth. Psalm 47 verse 9. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. He rules not only over all the kings of the, of the, of the earth, but he rules over all the nations of the earth. Psalm 96 verse 10. Say among the, the nation, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Not only does he control all the kings of the earth, not only does he control the nations of the earth, but he also controls the plans and purposes of peoples and of the nations. Psalm 33, verse 10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart 
to all generations. See, he reigns universally, but he also reigns eternally. Psalm, 96, Psalm 66, verse 7, he rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. So it's with this opening the psalmist is saying he, he reigns over all things. He reigns universally. He reigns eternally. He reigns alone. And it's after opening the psalm with this proclamation that the, that the Lord reigns, that the psalm begins to describe the apparel with which this king is clothed. Look at it. It says, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Now, God does not actually have clothes. He, he has no need for clothes, for he has no body. Rather, he is presented here in the manner in which a king would be dressed. You see, kings wear robes, and the splendor of the king would be presented in such a way that uh, his dress and in his robe would, would declare to the nations and to the peoples his greatness. And so the psalmist here wants us to see what we cannot see with our eyes. He wants us to see that it is the majesty with which clothes the Lord. He's emphasizing for us that this king, that Yahweh, has a robe that no earthly king can match. This majesty emphasizes the glory of God. And the Lord is also represented here as having, having a strength, put on strength as his belt. This, this is the phrase indicating that he is ready for action, ready to control his kingdom. And the psalmist just states this. He just, he just says it matter of fact. He doesn't, like all the other psalms that I referenced this morning so far, they're always like, uh, the Lord reigns, therefore exalt in him. The Lord reigns, therefore let the nations be glad, but not this psalm. He's simply saying, this is the great reality of the universe, that the Lord reigns. And this splendor and this majesty is presented as being far above any other king. And this king is ready to enter into battle on behalf of his people. And the evidence, you say, well, okay, how, 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 can, he, how can he know this to be true? The evidence that this king is the one who has authority is given in the last part of the verse. Look at this. He says, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. This world over which Yahweh reigns is established, meaning it is fixed, not moving. It is a created reality over which no other can move it. The psalmist here is drawing the reader into understanding that what we can see that the world is. We can, we can see that the world exists, right? Like, I don't, I don't know how much you read of Elon Musk, but like, ignore that guy. Uh, like, ignore anyone who says that, like, what, what you see is not real. It is real. We're really here. We're not simply uh, microcosms of a greater thing. Rather, we, we are here. The world exists. There are flowers we can smell. Wind which blows through some of our hairs. Sunrises and sunsets which we can enjoy. The stars and the moon which we can marvel at. There is friendship which we can enjoy, and people with whom we can love. This is the created world which is established. We can see this. And we can see that all of these things around us exist. 
then the psalm is telling us in the same way that we can see the physical world around us and know that it is real, then just as sure as we can know that the Lord reigns. Kingdoms of the world, nations, cities, people groups, all of these things might be moved and changed, but not the inhabited world of which you and I live. Imagine how much the people of Israel actually needed to hear this. During times of captivity, surely they must have thought, this is, this is it. This is the end of the world as we know it. Or perhaps they believed that the Lord did not sovereignly reign over the Babylonian Empire which had captured them. They needed to hear. They needed to be reminded. They needed the psalm to proclaim to them once again that the world is established and that it will not be moved and that God reigns over it all. So maybe it's not Babylonian over which we have fears. Or maybe it's global warming or, or, or any other number of things. Maybe it's World War III, right? What is it that, that causes us to begin to think that maybe God isn't in control? You need to hear this psalm. It needs to be reminded. We need to be reminded. Like the, the United States of America. Is it, is it young or old? Anybody know? Relatively young in the, in the, the world of, of nations and empires. And we need to be reminded that the United States of America, as a government and as a society, may eventually fail. It may eventually fall. And even if it does, the Lord still reigns and that the earth will not be moved. Look at verse 2. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Notice the psalmist is switching here. He switched to uh, talking about the Lord to talking to the Lord. He's directly addressed here. And here we are no longer speaking about the establishing of the world the establishment of the reign of God. You see, after reading the first verse, we, like, like maybe little children, might ask the question, well, if the Lord reigns, then was there ever a time when he didn't reign? Was there ever a period of time when the reign of this king did not exist? And here we find our answer. Your throne is established from the void. You are from everlasting. It is made clear that this inhabited world of human beings is not in some way independent of God. It has its own existence apart from him. You see, we as humans discover, as we discover more and more about our world, right? How many of you guys seen the, the image of the, of the James uh, whatever telescope the other couple weeks back? Anybody see it? It's this image, beautiful image, right? It's this galaxies, thousands of galaxies, uh, not, not stars, but, but actual galaxies uh, were captured by this image. The, 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 the best image we have of space. And they asked the, the, the people who took the picture, they said, like, how much, how, what was the field of vision upon which uh, this picture was taken? And they said, if you hold a grain of sand about arm's length away, that's about how big uh, the telescope was actually looking for. And in that picture was thousands of galaxies. As we discover more and more about our world, we are apt to think highly of ourselves. I'm like, wow, look at that. We captured a picture of space. As we discover more and more, as we uh, become more ingenuitive, as we become more technologically based, you know, like we begin to think that we're the masters of our own destinies. 
Right? We, we live in the technology age, for crying out loud. So here we are told in direct uh, opposition to that that it is God who is everlasting, not us. Notice with me in verses 3 and 4, we, ha- we have a picture of, of what this rain looks like in action. What this raining looks like in action. Look at verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lifted up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. The psalm is still addressing God by his covenant name, Lord, Yahweh. Praises his authority over the sea and water. What is said in these two verses reiterates and conforms uh, and confirms the message of the first two verses, namely that the Lord reigns. Despite occasional devastating floods and tsunamis and earthquakes and wildfires, there is a general stability about the ordered world as God promised Noah in the aftermath of the universal flood. Like, like, like Psalm 92 verse 9 says, For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You see, we have in verse 3, look at it, the, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. What he's doing here is this, what the, um, the Hebrew poetry would call staircase parallelism. Where the second line repeats the incomplete first line. Look at it. Uh, the first line is, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. And the second line completes it. The floods have lifted up their voices. In addition, by repeating the lines about the floods lifting up their waves or uh, their, their, their voices, we have a vivid picture of waves crashing relentlessly onto the beach. Now, I spent the last two weeks uh, on a couple different beaches. Uh, last week, we were on Lake Michigan, uh, which, by the way, I know we're in Ohio State uh, territory at this point. Uh, it, it's beautiful up there, fam. Uh, if you haven't been up there, you're, you're missing out on one of God's uh, gifts to us. Uh, I know... Uh, another pastor said, are you allowed to return to Ohio after saying that? And another pastor said, that's heresy. You can't say those things. So I'm just putting that out there uh, for your enjoyment. Um, and, but, but, but when we go to the waves at the sea, and, and Myra, when we first took her, uh, she, she hates water, by the way. She hates baths. She hates showers. She hates splash pads. She hates all of it. Uh, but we took her to the sea, uh, and we, we are on the lake of Michigan anyway, and uh, we, we took her up to the waves, and at first, she, she wanted nothing to do with it. Not a thing to do with it. But over time, she began to become more in love with the water. She would stand in the water. That's all she did. She would just stand there and stare out. And as a matter of fact, I would try to go out in the water with the other kids, and she would stand there and cry until I came back, as if to say, Daddy, how dare you? And so at one point... <laughs> Julie said, ah, look at that, the old ball and chain keeping you, keeping you on the beach here. So uh, it is what it is. We had a great time. But, but the second day we went to the lake, uh, the kids, uh, they had the red flag out. Now, anybody, you guys know what the flag systems mean in the waves, right? Like, green means you're good, don't really have to worry. Yellow means be cautious. Uh, red means uh, be very careful. You might get taken away. Uh, well, they had a red flag out the second day we went to the beach there with the kiddos. Uh, and at first, Julie wanted no part of them in the water at all. They could stand right where their toes would just barely touch the water. Uh, she was, you know, deathly afraid that these kids would be swept away into the Great Lake of Michigan. And so after a while of being there, after about an hour or so, I decided I would take the kids out into the waves so they can actually uh, feel the pressure and the power and the might of these waves. And so that's what we did. 
We went out, and then Julie was just giving me a glare from the beach. I seen her, pretended I didn't see her, and then uh, me and the kids went out a little farther still. Uh, but, but after a while, uh, you know, it only takes about one good wave crashing over a toddler or a four- or five-year-old before they begin to be like, oh, gosh, I'm scared. So that's what happened. First it was with Abram. He, he drank some water and just starts crying, thinks he's dying. I'm like, just walk. Just stand up and walk. We're not even out that far. Um, that's why I tried to tell mom, but she didn't listen. Just get up and walk back. It's okay. And then a little bit later, I'm, I'm with Marley, and we go out a little bit farther, and then it happens to her too. Wave just gets too big. She couldn't catch the ride the way good enough, and then inhales all the water. It starts freaking out, just like this moment of panic happens on her face. Like, Dad, I want to go back. I want to go back. It's far enough. Listen, listen, listen. I'm using this as an illustration to say there's something uh, important about the waves. Whether you're on an ocean or on a a great lake. The waves throughout uh, history have been uh, a a source of of, of wonder and, and majesty and fear. You see, the ancient Near Eastern myths indicate uh, that, that it was pagan gods who controlled the sea, or that, that had great difficulty in controlling the seas. They thought that, like, that, that, that this is where the source of evil comes from. If you read the book of Daniel, some of the, the end-time prophecies, it says that the, the, the creatures will come out of the sea, right? All of this is, uh, is to say that like, uh, this psalm, like Psalm 29, indicates that it's the true God who revealed himself to Moses and his people, is the one who is in absolute control of the seas. God alone is the sure refuge to, who all, to all who put their trust in him. You see, as a matter of fact, the Psalms, the waters, will often be used for any experience that tends to overwhelm God's people. Psalm 18, it says this, He sent from on high, he took me he drew me out of many waters he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me for they were too mighty for me they confronted me in the day of my calamity but the lord was my support he brought me out into a broad place he rescued me because he delighted in me the psalmist is being rescued notice out of the waters psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help and trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Here, waters are seen as the thing which swallows up entire mountain ranges. And it is comforting to know that the one who is mightier or more magnificent than the majestic sea breakers has promised he will be with us. Psalm 43, or Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. The Lord, Yahweh, is in control of the very thing which the Psalms seem to fear more than anything else. Psalm 89 Verses 8 and 9 says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. At the end of the third book of Psalms, there's a note and recognition of the fact that the Lord controls the waves and that he stills them. 
Psalm 65, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumults of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You see, Psalm 65 adds a little note here. It seems to indicate not only that the Lord controls the waters, that he stills the waves, but he does so in order that those of us who live on the earth, that's all people, by the way, might be filled with awe, that we might see the signs and the control of God and be filled with wonder at the majesty and glory and the might of the Lord. Why do we get so amazed when we go to the ocean waves, when we go to the beach and the shoreline, what is it that draws us to just stopping and staring and looking? The fact that the Lord's in control of such power, of such might. It is, is it any wonder then that when Jesus shows up on the scene, we see this very thing begin to play out? Flip over to Mark chapter 4. We preached this a couple, I don't know, a year or so ago. Flip over. I just want to point this out to us here. Because the Jewish people had a, a great fear of the waters. All ancient Near Eastern uh, peoples had a great fear of the waters. It's from the waters that the troubles came. They, there was no control. There was nothing they could do to stop the waters. By the way, there's nothing we can do here in 2022 to actually stop the waters. Not a thing we can do. We can build our sandbags. We can build our barricades. And yet the hurricanes will come. The tsunamis will come. And we are left devastated in its way. There's nothing we can do to control it. But look at Mark chapter 4. Verse 35 says this. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. This being Jesus. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were there with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus, asleep on the boat, and the waves breaking into the boat. So his disciples wake him with great panic in their eyes, and he gets up, and listen, he controls the waters. Notice in Mark's gospel, he rebukes the wind, but he tells the sea to be still. This man, this Jesus, just told the waters to be still. Now, I know we read that. We've been in, if we've been in church for any length of time. We're like, yeah, 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 he stilled the water. But, but wait a minute. <laughs> he just told the waters to be still, and they listened. I wonder if when the disciples heard it, they began to think of all the psalms which seemed to see the, in, the waters as the enemy as the uncontrollable thing from which they need saved. And then perhaps they thought of Psalm 93, verse 4. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. You see, verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 93 are a picture of how exactly the Lord reigns. He is mightier than the most uncontrollable thing in the world. 
He's more majestic than the seas. Finally, look at me with verse 5 in Psalm 93. Flip back. Psalm 93. We have this, this picture of perfection of the temple here in verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. This verse at first, at first reading begins to feel a little out of place because in verses 1 and 2 we're talking about the fact that the Lord reigns over everything. And then in verses 3 and 4 we're given the picture of the Lord reigning, being more mightier, uh, more majestic than the seas. And now this last verse we're given these two statements here. Um, statement number one, your decrees are very trustworthy. And statement number two, holiness befits your house. But if we think for a few moments more deeply and try to understand, well, what does that have to do with the first four verses? How does this relate? We notice it's not a sudden change of subject. For notice that the decrees or the, the testimonies of God include all of his commands and all of his promises. So the psalmist is saying here, he's saying that all the promises and all the commands of Yahweh are to be trusted that they are trustworthy. So, for example, at the time of creation, God issues commands concerning the waters. And the book of Genesis says, Then God said, Let the waters be gathered together, and it was so. Then after the flood and the covenant God made with Noah and his descendants, God issued a promise that he would never again destroy the world through the waters of a flood. These testimonies that the psalmist is speaking here are like the ones given to Moses and Israel in the covenant he made with them. They are very reliable. They are very sure. They are the true sayings of God. This is what the psalmist means, saying, because the Lord is almighty, because the Lord reigns, and you can trust in his promises. This is the reference, uh, this, this next line, the holiness befits his house, your house. This is a reference to the temple as God's earthly throne and place of his presence. The temple as the house of Yahweh, the place of his presence and of his throne, shares in his majesty. Only that majesty partakes of the character of a majestic sanctity, separate and apart from all that is unconsecrated and profane. This, the temple of God throughout the scriptures are of utmost importance. And the temple of God is always meant, here's what it's, it's meant to signify the place where God is. We see this in the story of Moses right before leading the people through the Red Sea, Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by a night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The presence of Almighty God is represented by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. But not only that, but this, this, this uh, presence of God fills the tabernacle once it's constructed. Exodus chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was the temple in which in 1 Kings chapter 8, a cloud filled the holy place so that the priest could not even enter in and minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And it was the temple which takes up the majority of the Old Testament pages. The temple was a picture of perfection on earth. It was a throwback to the time of Eden when God dwelt with man. 
Thus you can understand the reaction of the Jews when they were asked for a sign from Jesus in John chapter 2 when Jesus drives out the money changers who are sitting in the temple and they, they said, give us a sign that we know who you are, that we know you're really real. In John chapter 2, Jesus answers them. He says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? You see, it was Jesus saying that he could rebuild the temple of God in three days, which he was accused of in trial before the high priest. But of course, Jesus was not talking about the physical temple, was he? He was talking about the temple of his body. The temple of the dwelling place of God, and while Jesus was on the earth, there God dwelt. This is what, this is what he's saying, the holiness befits your house. He's talking about the temple of the Lord, because where God is, there is holiness, there is glory, there is might, there is reigning sovereignty. So that's what the psalm says. It's primarily comprised of statements of facts. God reigns, he is mightier than the seas, he is everlasting, his presence is holy. There are no commands placed on us as the people of God. There are no calls of repentance for us. There's only statements about reality as it truly is. So I was thinking and meditating and preparing for this sermon. I kept asking the Lord, what do you want me to do? Because here's what I know. The scriptures are never given to us just for informational purposes. You understand that, right? Like, like you could have the entirety of the scriptures memorized and still miss the point. You could know the deep things of the Lord and still be utterly unchanged by it. And so I kept struggling with this text, understanding, okay, this is what it means, this is what it says. It says the Lord reigns, but, but, but why is it important? How should we live knowing that? And as I prayed and studied this passage of scripture, I found another scripture related to this, which served as the key to open the door of Psalm 93 for me, to answer the question, what do you want me to do? Or how do you want me to live? But before we get there. We just need to spend a few minutes understanding the, the when of this passage. The when of this passage. We've looked at the what of this passage so far. Let's look at the, the when of this text. When is this text talking about? This is massively important. You understand? A lot of commentators struggle with this. Many good minds disagree on this specific text and understanding. Is the psalm speaking of right, right now? Or is it speaking of, of a day to come? For the last days, I think it would be helpful in answering this question of when is this text by first having a brief understanding of what a kingdom is. Remember, this is all talking about the reign of God, God's kingdom. Because the main point of the text is that God reigns, and to reign implies ruling of a kingdom, and the scriptures are filled with the idea of the kingdom of God. So in understanding when we need to under, what we need to understand a little bit about kingdom that God rules. To do that, helpful, uh, this is real, I'm going to give them real quick, four different distinctions in talking about the kingdom. I, I stole these from D.A. Carson uh, online. You can go read them more in depth if you want, but, but the first idea of a kingdom in the Bible is closer to what, what you and I would call a king dominion, that is the reign of a king. One of our problems is that this often, <clears throat> that this is often what we think of a realm rather than a, a reign. You see, when we hear the word kingdom, what comes into our minds? Perhaps the, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, 
or the United Kingdom. You see, we're thinking in geopolitical area, uh, geographical area with its people and its buildings and its institutions and its streets. However, a kingdom has to do with more the reign of God rather than the realm of God's reign. Number two, when we think of kingdom, because we live in America, which is a republic, we don't have many positive associations with which to think about the kingdom of God. You see, it didn't end well for the last king of America. And so we often garner in our mind the idea of a queen of England, perhaps, who is head of state but not head of government. We need to understand that in the scriptures there is no such distinction. God reigns the kingdom, and he is the king, and he has all authority. The third distinction in kingdom is understanding that in one sense, God rules all things absolutely. Everyone falls under this reign simply because they are his creation, like it or not. But there is another subset of the reign in which there is life, which there is salvation. So all people everywhere, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your children, uh, your, your friends and co-workers, all people fall into the kingdom of God. But there is a distinction within that. Because not all people are in the subset of that kingdom of God where there is actual life. You see, Jesus said in John 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What he means is that there are people who are not part of understanding and seeing the kingdom of God because they do not believe in the Christ whom God has sent. So there's this idea that we're all in the kingdom. Every person, this is where we get the idea that we're all children of God. We're all creatures of God, yes, but are we all children of God? Do we all have life in the same way? Are we all saved in the same way? Are all people saved? No. So not all people are in the subset of the kingdom of God wherein there is life. The fourth and final distinction is an understanding that the kingdom has dawned with the coming of Christ. And that there is a sense in which the kingdom is not here fully yet. You see, in the first, we know from Matthew 28, 18, that Christ currently, right now, has all authority. He is right now reigning. Like, right now. Like, on your drive into church this morning, the Lord Christ was reigning. But we also know from 1 Corinthians 15 that all of God's authority is mediated through him. That the, G, the reign of Jesus is currently, and yet the, the reign of Jesus is currently being contested. It is being challenged. But there's coming a time when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and when the last enemy of Christ will be destroyed. This is why Jesus tells his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So right now Christ is reigning, but not all people realize that, and so there's contesting, there's pushback against that reign, that kingship of him, of, of Christ. And so understanding these distinctions of the kingdom might better help us understand, well, which distinction is being mentioned here in Psalm verse one, 90, 93 verse 1. You see, it says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. You see, it seems pretty evident that the kingdom with which this psalm is referring to 
is the kingdom in which all things exist. That is the sovereign kingdom of God. So know that. Understand that the psalmist, what he has in his mind is he's writing these words in Holy Scripture. He's talking about the universal sovereign reign of the king. The psalm wants us to look to things as they really are. When life is crashing around you, when the waters are flooding in and threatening to drown you, know that it is God who rules over these things. And yet, there is a sense in which the psalm is also pointing to a future rule of God. Because there will come a future time when the reality in which we inhabit, with all the enemies of God contesting the reign of God, will become the reality where the sense in which God reigns supremely with no more enemies. So this psalm is both a pointer back to the ultimate reality of God's reign, but also a pointer forward to the coming reality of God's reign. Therefore, since we know this, what then, pastor, is this psalm supposed to do for us? How does God want us to be changed from Psalm 93? How does knowing when this reign is supposed to be help us in understanding this? So finally, let's look at why this text is important. I want to show you the verse, the key which unlocked this text for me. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. This is John writing, the disciple whom Jesus loved, caught up in a vision of heaven with all the people praising the one who is seated on a throne. And in this vision where he's seeing all the people praising the one who is seated on the throne, he also sees 24 elders and these four living creatures are falling down and worshiping God in Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Do you see it? Do you see the allusion here to Psalm 93? In Psalm 93, we have the floods lifting up their voice and roaring. In Revelation 19, we have the great multitude lifting up their voice, like the roar of many waters and like the sounds of thunder. In Psalm 93, we have the Lord clothed in majesty, and strength. And in Revelation 19, we have the church clothed in the righteousness of the saints. In Psalm 93, we have the holiness of the temple. And in Revelation 19, we have the holiness of the bride of Christ. In Psalm 93, we have the Lord who is reigning. And in Psalm 19, we have the Lord who is reigning. So these texts are connected. In Psalm 93, we're given a description of ultimate reality and a coming reality, which will one day be. And in Revelation 19, we are given a glimpse of that coming reality. You see, our hearts should be stirred. Our affections should overwhelm us. Our emotions should be bubbling up in anticipation of that great day. But Pastor Matt, you haven't answered the question. What does Psalm 93 want us to do? If it's more than just informational, 
about the way things really are and will one day be, then how should we be changed by the information? Did you, did you not see it? <laughs> did you not notice it there in Revelation 19? Look again with me at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. See what the great multitude is crying out here. Hallelujah, or God be praised. And then notice the next word, for. Praise God because he reigns. The ground, the reason why the great multitude is crying out, hallelujah, is because it's the Lord our God, the one, the Almighty, whom reigns. You see, Psalm 93 is a call on you and I to praise him. To praise him because he reigns. Praise him because he reigns over all things right now. Praise him because there is coming a day when all people under his kingdom will see and know this great reality. Praise him because there is no enemy more magnificent, more mighty than he. Not even the oceans which rage against the shores can thwart his reign. You see, the scriptures are never meant to simply inform us. They are meant to drive us to worship the one reigns. The stability that's praised in this psalm enables scientists to function in their laboratories, astronomers to predict what the next total eclipse of the sun will take place, oceanographers to calculate the times of the tide, and farmers to sow their seed in springtime and expect a harvest in the autumn. This same sovereign Lord of the universe is the God and Father of all who belong to Christ, to Jesus, God's Son, we can be assured of his care for us and the decree concerning the eternal security of all his chosen ones. Therefore, we live currently in this kingdom of God's reign, which contests Christ's rule at every turn, knowing he will not stop. Our God, our King, reigns. Father God, Lord, we love you. We thank you. Lord, I pray that we would sit under Psalm 93 this week. And we would pause to examine our lives in light of the reality that you are in control of all things. Every moment of every day. You never sleep, you never slumber, Father. You watch over us. You keep us. And Lord, while we're surrounded by enemies who would reject you and say that you're not my king, Father, we know that there's coming a day where all your enemies will put, be put underneath your feet, Father. Lord, may we be driven to praise because of Psalm 93. Hallelujah. For the Lord... Our God Almighty reigns. May we praise you from our hearts, Father. May we praise you to our family. May we praise you to our children, to our co-workers. Lord, you, you reign. Lord, let us put this truth deep inside our guts to be the foundation upon which we walk and live and move and have our being, Father. 
pray you help us now in Christ's name. Amen.